I am really excited to be with you today, and I can assure you that introduction was way too gracious. But I'm, I'm really glad to be here. In fact, as I'm here, there is a pastor from your church, Jeff Gill, who is at Pathway a few miles down the road, sharing in our service what God is doing at Mission Point, and we're praying for you guys right now. I love Kondo's comments about the spirit of teamwork among churches in our community. The idea that we're competing just has no place in the kingdom of God. So I'm especially glad to be here and a part of this series, Strangers Looking at the Beatitudes and the idea of salt and light, because that is so close to my heart. And so near and dear to me, I visited a couple times when I'm on vacation. Sometimes I'll come to Mission Point and just worship. And I think uh, so highly of Kondo and this church um, and really glad to see how God is at work here. I want to share with you on theme today of how the Holy Spirit has so disrupted so much of my life in a way that I would never go back to and I'm so thankful for. I was pacing around the room sweaty palms and heart full of butterfly flutters, realizing that the only next step I had to take was stepping over the gap between theory and practice, and to do so would require risk. When I moved to Warsaw six years ago to be the pastor at Pathway Church, I saw a statistic, and I'd seen it before, but when I saw it again about a year in, it just almost broke me down to tears and has leveled me ever since. It's the statistic you probably know that three, that two out of every three people in our county are not connected to a church at all. So from where we sit in a 20-mile radius, 50,000 people are not doing what we're doing at all this week. And that just blew me away because you drive almost any street in Warsaw and you see a ton of churches. And the the the, the Face perception is, this is such a Christian community, and it just broke my heart to realize two out of every three people that I meet have no church connection at all, and so many of them are missing the hope and the life-changing love of Jesus. It blew me away. So I started thinking differently about why we're here. It's not just to pastor our church. It's not just to connect people to some meaningful programs. It is to really reach the people that God cares so much about around us in our community. So I'd start talking about it. I'd preach about it more often. I would spend some time uh, equipping people in Sunday morning to do things to reach out. I talked to them a lot about connecting with people who are not connected to a church. And as I talked about this over the years, I had this growing discomfort inside of myself that I'm not doing much about it. And I wasn't trying to compare myself to what somebody else was doing. I just simply asked myself the question, well, what am I doing to reach people in our community who are not connected to Jesus? And I realized it wasn't really that much. And especially if you take away the pastoral advantage, what was I doing after that? Because it's easy. Let me just share. It's easy as a pastor when you have a a spotlight on you and somebody gives you a mic and everybody shows up expecting that you're going to talk about Jesus. It's fairly easy to do that in that context. When that's not the case, when you're in a conversation with somebody that it could be any sort of conversation at work, at home, over the phone, that's a whole different scenario. And so I realized I'm really not doing that much. I'm telling people to do stuff, but I'm not doing that much myself. I, like you, grew up in a culture that has indoctrinated me in friendship evangelism myths. And that just has paralyzed me from actually sharing the gospel with anybody in an intentional way, such as um, the friendship evangelism myth of 
you have to be friends with everyone in order to share Jesus with them. Or you've got to know them a long time. Like you've got to develop a really deep relationship before you could ever talk about God and have any credibility or authority in their life. Or the, the, the thing of like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be like a, a good person and have joy. And other people who are not Christians will come to me and they'll ask, what's so different about your life? What's, what's the hope that you have? Somehow I had, I had shifted the responsibility of talking about Jesus to people who don't know him and wondered why that wasn't working. And so after several years, the Holy Spirit was such making me so uncomfortable in my comfort zone that I realized I just have to do something different other than the nothing that I'm doing. It's not working. And I had really well-tailored excuses. I mean, like, my reason, my rationale was solid. I don't do this kind of stuff. I don't do that because I'm a pastor. I'm an equipper. Like, I equip people to do it. So I'll, I'll preach about stuff that I'm not doing and tell other people to do it. And I'm not an evangelist. That's not my spiritual giftings. I've got other spiritual gifts. So that's not even on my radar. So that's not my focus. And I'm an introvert. I really am fairly shy around people and new people and conversations and I don't even know hardly anybody who's not connected to our church. I work at my church. That's where we worship. That's most of our friend group. My kids aren't in public school yet. They're too young. All these factors that were just really, to me, solid reasons of all the things I wasn't doing. And yet the discomfort just kept coming. Loving disruption from the Holy Spirit to the point where I knew I just have to do something. So I was in the room practicing sharing my story practicing sharing the gospel by myself in the room, practicing how to communicate the message of Jesus in a way that somebody who didn't grow up in church would understand. I was in my room literally writing down all the names of all the people that I knew that were not following Jesus and praying for them by name. And then I realized, why am I so nervous? Why am I? Because there's nothing left to do other than to take a step of doing it. Like it, it felt a little dorky to practice all those things by myself in the mirror in the room, but there was nothing else to do except do it. And I, I literally sat down and said, why am I so scared? I'm a pastor. And I'm really scared to talk about Jesus. Why? Like I, there's no excuse. Like I hear all these people that I know that I know they are missing the hope of Christ and hear, hear all these things. Like I'm, I know what to do. I just don't want to do it because I'm embarrassed. That's what it boiled down to. And when that word became, I'm embarrassed. Because what if people think, oh, he's just doing this because he's a pastor and he's trying to get me to come to his church or he has some ulterior motive or, or man, what if people think that I'm some sort of Bible thumping weird person and, and they just don't ever want to talk to me again? Or what if I damage somebody's faith that's actually starting to grow or... What if I just get old-fashioned, flat-out rejected and people don't like that I'm associated with Jesus? I, I'm embarrassed. I remember reading something about what Jesus said about that. If you're ashamed of me in front of people, I don't want him to be ashamed of me when he comes again. And that thought hit me and I, I stopped and I asked myself, do I really believe this stuff? Do I really believe that Jesus is the Lord, the, the hope of the whole world? I really do. Yeah, I do. 
Do I really believe that everybody that I've written down, all their names, their deepest, truest need is to have a relationship with Jesus where they find forgiveness and they find hope and they find the purpose? Yes, I do. Do I really believe that Jesus has given this mission of sharing the good news to all of his followers, including me? Yeah, I really believe that too. So why the gap between all the stuff that I believe and actually practicing it? I knew I had to do something. I'm telling you, this is not a good plan. I didn't know what to do. So I got my shoes on. I figured, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to need my shoes on. So I got my shoes on. And I walked out of my house. I I don't know what to do, but I can't do it from my house. So I walked out of my house. And I just walked up my street. I'm like, I don't have a plan. I don't know what I'm doing. I just can't keep doing nothing. And I'm not going to sit any longer just devise some sort of strategic plan i just need to i just need to act i just need to do something so i walked up my street and i prayed for all my neighbors by name as i walked past their houses quietly because i didn't want them to hear me and then i turned around and as i was walking back to my house i prayed on the other side of all my neighbors by name and man two-thirds like for sure more than two-thirds of my neighbors weren't connected to a church and i knew some of their stories and some of their hurts and i was just praying for them by name. So I went back in the house and I thought, okay, that went well. I'll do that again. <laughs> so the next day, got up, walked down my street, prayed for my neighbors by name, asked God to give me insight on how to pray for them. Prayed for them by name. I did that seven days in a row. Prayed for every single person in my street by name. And then after seven days, I thought, okay, that's good. Like, that's something. What next? And after seven days in a row, I decided, you know what? I'm going to walk and pray with people. Maybe. I'm going to try that. See how that goes. So I walked out of my house again and just intended to, you know what? I'm going to just offer to pray with somebody if I see him. I'm not going to knock on their door or climb in their window or anything, but I'm just going to offer. So I walked down my street. It was a nice summer day. I see this uh, middle-aged lady sitting on her front porch having a smoke. And I thought, okay, I'm going I'm to go talk to her. <laughs> like, she's probably going to cuss me out of her lawn, but I'm going to go say hi to her and see if there's anything. So I walked up and I said, hi, my name is Jared. I live right down the road. I'm a neighbor. I just wanted to stop by and see if there's anything that I could pray for you about today. I'm on a walk. Embraced myself. And she looked at me and she's like, yeah, my son was just murdered this year. Picked my jaw back up and she's told Invited me to have a seat on her porch. She told me the story of how all this horrible stuff had happened. And I was so shocked that she had gone through this tragedy and so shocked that she was telling a stranger about it so I could pray for her. After a few minutes talking, her other neighbor came out and she was starting to share some of her story. And I just said, would it be okay if I prayed for that now? And we bowed our heads and just prayed, prayed for her, prayed for God's mercy in her life, prayed for all kinds of things related to both of these individuals. And I walked away thinking, Oh my goodness, that went well. I should do that again. So I did that again. And I thought, well, this one's probably not going to go well because the last time it went well. So I'm just bracing myself again. So, so I walk him through my neighborhood. I see this guy next street over. Don't recognize, don't know who he is, but he's a, t- he's a tough looking guy. Like he's out grilling steaks in his front yard. He's a tough guy. He's got sunglasses, all kinds of tattoos. I'm like, oh man, oh man, this guy's not going to want me to pray for him. Hi, my name is Jared. I, I just live right over the across the street. I just wondered if there's anything I could pray for you about today. He takes off his shades, looks at me. He's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a few months clean. I'm trying to get off of uh, 
trying to get off of drugs. And my girlfriend's expecting our first, so yeah, I'd, I'd like that. So she comes out, we talk for a while, and I'm just dumbfounded that this guy is actually hungry for God, not connected anywhere, and wants me to pray for him. And so we pray, and I go back, and this was the pattern. And week after week, I'd walk out of my house going, I hate this. I don't think I should be, I think I'm, I just don't even think this is a good idea. But every time on, on the way back afterwards, I'd walk back to my house going, I am so glad I did. I can't believe the opportunities, the, the, open, the open doors that people had, how much people wanted to be, how, how blessed they felt, how much connection to God they felt. Almost every time, a few cold shoulders, but most of the time it was just stunning reception. I couldn't believe it in, in the community. In Matthew 9, at the end, there's this little section in verse 35 through 37. It goes something like this. Jesus was traveling to all the towns and villages in Galilee and Judea. He was traveling through all the towns and villages, and he was preaching the gospel, and he was healing people of all their diseases. And as crowds gathered, wherever Jesus went, there tended to be crowds gathered, And as crowds gathered, he looked at them and he had compassion on them. His heart went out to them because they were like sheep without a what? Those of you who know it, say it louder. They were like sheep without a what? Shepherd. And I want to come closer to you, but if I take one more step, I will need healing. So he looks at all these people and he describes them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then do you know what the very next thing he does? He does not, he does not go into the crowd. He doesn't stop and preach to the crowd. He turns to his disciples. He brings them over. He says, hey, I want, I want, to, I want to ask you guys to pray for something. There are very few times in the New Testament where Jesus specifically tells his disciples what to pray for. One of them is the Lord's Prayer. We memorize that one. This is another really key time. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest all these people, that he would send more workers out into the harvest field because the harvest is plentiful. The workers are... Can you imagine that prayer? Jesus himself is standing among a crowd of people and essentially saying, hey guys, I'm not enough here. Like This, is, this isn't all on me. If you think I'm going to reach all these people by myself, you're wrong. Pray that God sends more workers. And then the very next verse... Guess what he does? Okay, all of you who just prayed that prayer, you're going to be helping, helping answer that prayer. Like, I want you to go do it. Very next verse. He gives them authority to do what they had just seen him do. And then he sends them off to do it in pairs. Okay, pair up. Go to every town, go to, the, go to the villages, do what you've seen me do. Preach the good news of Jesus. You have authority to heal the sick. You have authority to cast out demons. You have the power of God. Everywhere, everywhere you go, you're free to go there. Like, I'm, I'm telling you, you're good to go anywhere. Unless you get there and they don't want you, then you leave. Just leave. You don't have to argue. You don't have to beat down doors. You don't have to convince people with your apologetics. You don't have to call fire and brimstone down on them. If they don't want you there, just move on. And this is what they did. If you read with an eye for it in all four Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus has a really clear mission from God. 
He knows what God, his father, has sent him to do, especially in John's gospel. All kinds of groups are trying to dissuade him from the mission and tell him not to do this or to to stop doing this or do this. Sometimes people from within his ranks step in between him and God's mission. And Jesus has laser focus. No, 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 I, I know what I'm here to do. It's not just a ministry. I'm not just ministering. I have a mission from God that I must accomplish. And when he finished it, he actually said, it's finished. I've accomplished what God has given me to do. Almost all the gospels have some sort of mission statement language. Even even sounds like a mission statement. Like John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life to the fullest extent. Or Luke 4, quoting from Isaiah, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to break the chains of the oppressed. Matthew 28, it comes at the end. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. Jesus knows what his mission is. And he actually has a field. If you read a little bit more carefully, you'll recognize that Jesus spent his entire ministry traveling through all the towns and and villages in a particular region. That geographical area, you could walk from the tip point to the farthest point of it in 10 days. Yeah, he spent three years traveling in this small area. If you compare Jesus' ministry map to Paul's ministry map, Paul covered way more territory with way more diverse groups of people. Jesus was actually focused on his field because he knew his mission. He knew where God wanted him to accomplish it. And he initiated it. He traveled. He didn't just sit in Jerusalem or, or some place in a remote area waiting for people to come in. He traveled to these places sharing the good news of the gospel of the kingdom with them. He initiated it. What I also find interesting is he had ministry methods. Jesus, this was really intriguing to me when I started locking onto it and opening uh, some thoughts that I hadn't thought as a pastor before. Jesus' ministry methods, the three things that he did more than anything else in the Gospels, preach, heal, cast out demons. These are the big three. And it was really apparent when I started reading more carefully, recognizing this, everywhere Jesus went, he did one or more of these three methods. He preached, he healed people of their physical things, and he cast out demons. And I started looking at this thinking, it was this combination of the miracle and the message that drew crowds and caused people's... Cause the word of mouth to talk about Jesus and spread. People would walk for miles around because they knew when Jesus is around, things happen. Like if we can make it to a Jesus rally, we're going to get some good information. We're going to hear a powerful message that could change our lives, but we could be healed. Like this problem that I've been dealing with for 12 years is bleeding. If I could like push through the crowds and just get close enough to Jesus, that might be done. If I could get my friend into eyesight of Jesus, let's cut a hole through the roof, whatever we have to do. But where Jesus is around, things happen. And this started challenging me as a pastor because I've been a pastor in my own strength for so many years and doing all the things I've been taught. But in my church growing up, we only did one of the big three. There's lots of preaching. And we preached about the other things, but hardly heard stories growing up of the power of God at work in the other two. And if I did, there were stories from missionaries from other countries. And I started looking at my own life and thinking, I only do one of these in ministry for, for, for years. And I just wonder if the ministry methods of Jesus still apply for, for me. And I know a lot of people think they don't, but I just started re-asking the question, what if they do? 
Because everybody that Jesus trained seemed to do the same kinds of things he did. Like at least, at least a lot of the leadership, they would do what they saw Jesus doing. You follow, follow the trajectory of Acts and you see people doing the same kinds of things Jesus did. The miracle and the message combination was electrifying to spreading the gospel to new people. And you've got Peter preaching that message at Pentecost and thousands of people come and Philip goes to Samaria and he does signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit and preaches a message and all, all kinds of people were electrified by the combination of that miracle and message. And so I started just asking myself in the midst of my discomfort, all of my comfort zones of reaching out were already being dismantled. So I started saying, well, gee, God, if you want to do things in this way too, I don't want to stop you. Not comfortable with any of it. it doesn't, my theology hasn't caught up yet. I don't know what to think about this stuff. But then things started happening and God started moving in ways that I just go, this is like scripture. This is like stuff that happened in the, I don't want to go back to doing things on my own and in my own strength with my own leading. The results are not the same. Part of the reason it's so important in my heart is that I see us as churches, myself as a pastor, with, with so many people around us who are so hurting. They're just hurting. Like they're really hurting. And they're hungry. And we refer them to death. Like somebody comes and having this problem and we refer them to a doctor and they go to a doctor and they refer to a counselor and then refer to a book and then refer to a specialist. People who have marital problems, we refer them to, to, to this video to watch or something else. And I just look at the New Testament and just go, Jesus never referred. Like when Jesus was there, things happened. Like things happened. People's lives changed. And I honestly, I see a lot of people who are just hungry and just going, I've, where am I going to go to have that life transformation? They knew if I, could, if I could just get close enough to Jesus, things would change. If, I could, if I'm blind and I just yell loud enough, maybe he'll come to me and things would change. I've been fighting to get into the pool of Bethesda for my entire life, but Jesus comes along and then I don't even have to get in the pool. Things change. My whole life, I'm, not, I'm no longer an invalid. And, and there are a lot of people who are just hungry, hungry and hurting, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So I just started asking God, is this... Is it possible for you to do things that I just didn't ever think? And when that started happening, uh, it started changing my whole paradigm. One quick story. One day after a baptism class a couple years ago, a few people were preparing for baptism. One of the guys that was being baptized walks out the door and we're done with the class and his wife is standing there um, to pick him up. So we all start talking and I asked her a little bit about herself and she said she wanted to be baptized too. I said, oh, great. Well, when did you surrender your life to Jesus? I don't know your story. And she said, oh, it was two weeks ago in worship service. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. Wow, that's wonderful. So glad to hear that. And so the three of us sat down and we started talking. And during the course of the conversation, this would not have happened three years earlier because I just wouldn't, it wouldn't have had radar for it. But as she was talking, I just sensed that God wanted to bring healing to her body. So I asked her about any physical problems and she she started listing a number of them, um, all kinds of chronic or recurring pains, things she mentioned. But as she was talking, I just thought, no, your back. I think God wants to heal your back. And so I asked her, well, what about your back? She looks at her husband, looks at me. How'd you know about my back? I don't know about your back, but so she started describing every day she's in pain. It's working is difficult. She can't hardly sleep at night sometimes because her back is in so much chronic pain. Goes to a massage therapist every week and I said, well, why don't we pray for your back? I think God wants to bring healing there. And so we stop, and as we go to pray, 
I just kind of sensed that there's some things she needed to confess and talk to God about first. So I said, here, why don't we pray? And why don't you start by just talking to God about these things and, and confessing these things and thanking him for these things? And she goes, oh, wait, I can't pray. I'm like, what do you mean you can't pray? She's like, oh, no, my anxiety is so, <laughs> I can't pray. She couldn't, she couldn't even get the words out to pray. Paralyzed with anxiety. And I said, okay, well, let's deal with that first. In Jesus' name, anxiety, leave. Immediately, her hand stopped shaking. It's gone. Okay, would you like to pray now? Yeah. So she leans over and prays. And then I pray for her back. And we all walk away that night having sensed that God had showed up in a special way. I catch him two weeks later at a worship service. They're sitting near the front row before the service starts. And I hadn't seen him, so I just said, hey, how's it going? Nice to see you guys. She's like, oh, I'm great. You healed my back. And I'm like, I don't mean to be technical, but I don't heal anything. And she's like, no, no, since we prayed, my anxiety has been gone, hasn't it, honey? Like, my back has been feeling great. I'm feeling great. She was just all ears of smiles. And I was all ears of smiles. Normally in worship service, I don't sing during the songs because I don't want to lose my voice if I'm speaking by the end of the day. But that morning, I just couldn't help it. I, my hands were up and my voice was singing. I, I'm like, I don't care if we don't get a message today. If, I'm, if I lose my voice, it's worth it just to sing and praise God for his healing. When she got baptized with her husband, not long after that, Part of her story that she shared was not just finding the grace of Jesus for forgiveness, but it was experiencing his love through his healing. So I started asking myself, can God do things that I just said he couldn't do? And the answer started pouring in with this stuff. These three things happen um, in our community. And what I've been astonished to see is the regularity of people who are so hungry for this. I know there are a number of friends and, and pastors and, and friends of mine in our community who would just say, you know, that's, that's, we're not going to do that. That's not what God still does. And I would totally respect that, and that's fine. But we're going to do it. And the people who are healed are never the ones that argue. You know, the people who are set free after years and years of, of demonic stuff and hold and, and they're never the ones to think, well, gee, God doesn't do that anymore. I'm just glad to be well. So I've been praying for my neighbors for a while and realized, you know, God wants us to make disciples, not just pray for people. So I started a little Bible study in my house, figured I'll invite the people that I'm meeting in my neighborhood and this will be easier than inviting them to church because that might be a big step for people. So I started inviting people to my house for this little get-together once a week in my Bible study. First week, zero people were there besides me. Like, my family wasn't even there that week. I was by myself, feeling pretty sheepish. Fast forward six weeks, doing it every week. By week number six, zero people at my house. I was getting really discouraged. I'm like, I've been, I've been jotting people's names down so I knew how to pray for them. Everybody that I met, I shared the gospel with a number of people, prayed for a bunch of people that were very open to that. And I'm like, looking through this, I'm like, God, I have prayed, I have, I've been doing this. I've been taking steps, I've been taking risks, and it's not working. Like, I've I prayed for 50 people here. I've connected with 50 people, invited a bunch of people. It's not working, nobody's taking follow-up steps. I'm done, like, I'm just, I'm done. I'm frustrated, I resign. I'm like, I'm, I'm sick of this. So it had to be around that same week. I meet a guy who had just gotten out of jail and he was hungry for God. And he was also trying to leave behind a whole long past of addictions. And so as we're talking, I share the thing I 
practiced so many times. I shared what it means to be searching for God and what it means to surrender your life to Jesus and what it means to grow in your relationship with God. And I just asked him like, where he was on that. And he's like, oh, I'm searching. I was like, okay, is there anything holding you back from taking that step of surrender? No, I just don't know enough. That's probably all the thing. Okay, well, would you like to get together this week and look at the Bible about Jesus and what he said? Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I did a double take. I'm like, did you just say yes? Because <laughs> I've, I've been over 50. Like nobody has wanted to get together and grow at all. So we got together that week, sitting at a coffee shop. He brought his fiance with him. We're reading through stories about Jesus, about humility and Jesus, how Jesus actually doesn't like hypocrites either. He was relieved to know because he doesn't either. All the people that had judged him for all of his life. And so I shared the gospel with him again, shared my story with him, asked him again, like where he was. And he's like, I'm, I'm not ready to take any steps. So we met again the next week. Same thing. Prayed for each other, talked about who Jesus was, looked at the Bible, asked him again, shared the gospel. Where are you ready? He's like, yeah, I'm, I want to do that. So we bow our heads in the coffee shop. And as I'm feeding him lines of surrendering his life to Jesus, I'm quietly praying to God in my mind, can I please rescind my resignation? I'm so sorry. I don't know. This guy's life was changed. And so I shifted gears and realized, okay, the farmer scatters seed everywhere. And knowing Jesus told the story to make the point that the parable of the sower, three out of four soils are not going to do much. Three out of the four soils will not bring harvest, but where the seed sprouts, you invest in it. So I'm like, I got to really spend time. Like I got to help this guy grow. So we started meeting together regularly, spending a lot of time together, again, praying for each other, reading about Jesus, simple discussions about faith and spiritual journey. And immediately, like week one, I started helping him learn how to share his story of how Jesus had changed his life. And it's wonderful when people come to Jesus and they have life change and experience. They don't know they're not supposed to talk about it yet. Like, you don't have your theology all figured out. You don't, oh, don't say that to people. Like, oh my gosh, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna think you're weird. They, he, just, he was excited. So he started telling his probation officer, like, how God has changed his life. And dude, this is not why I don't drink anymore. And Jesus, and it was so exciting to see him immediately start sharing his story and over the weeks, over the months, his life was transformed. God changed this guy. And he changed me in the process. So I get a call not long after that, and after we baptized him and his adult son. I get a call from this other guy who's loosely, who's affiliated with our church and had just gotten out of jail. While he was in jail, his wife and kids left him, moved out. And he called at the bottom of the barrel, like dark, I don't have, I don't want to wake up tomorrow kind of, kind of low. And so we talked and once again, I shared how much God loved him. Jesus has a plan for your life and all this dark stuff, man, the light of Jesus can transform this stuff and there's hope, there's hope. And we talked and we prayed and we confessed some wrongs and he took some steps toward Christ. And I realized in that moment, this guy too, he needs somebody to walk with him. I can't just say, come back to church. He needs somebody in his life walking with him. And I realized it's not me. I can't be the bottleneck here because I, can, I can't do that. I, there's got to be more people into the harvest field. So I went to this guy who's a computer technician in our church. Good father, good husband, mature Christian guy. I was like, hey, would you meet with this guy and disciple him? We'll, we'll spend 90 minutes talking through and preparing for what that means. So I spent 90 minutes preparing this guy, matched him up, and now he's discipling this, this guy whose life is starting to change. 
this guy's life is starting to radically transform through this relationship with somebody walking with him and discipling him. His wife came back. She started being discipled by someone as well, one-on-one. They're, they both got connected to a small group. They're both now connected to our church. She's now discipling somebody else. He comes up to me the other day and he goes, hey, can we start like a thing where I can reach out to? I, got a, I know a bunch of people and families I'd like to reach out to them too and share, you know, like a devotion and, and things. Can, we do, can I have some space at the church? Like, well, let me think about that. Of course you can. This is, fan, this is fantastic. This guy's life is being changed. When they got baptized, not long after that, I asked him, who do you want to help be in the tank baptizing you? And you know who they picked? Computer technician. The other person that was deciding they were in the tank baptizing with the pastor that was baptizing them. Since then, it has been on my radar like crazy to see anybody who's hungry. Like, I just want to ask you this question and ask you to reflect on it for a minute. Do you think what Jesus said in Matthew 9 is still true for us? Is, is, the, is the real problem that the harvest is so big and we don't have enough workers? Is that the problem? Does that apply to us in our county? Because... So many times it feels like that's not the way we think. Like, hey, there's enough churches. If you want to go to one, go to one. Or like, hey, you live in America. You live in a Christian environment. Like, you know, there's plenty of helps and environment. Is the real problem that the harvest is there and it's big and we need to pray for more workers to go into it? I connected one of our board members and elders with a guy who just got out of work release. And by the way, this whole neighborhood thing, it was one of those God not steering a parked car thing. When I started moving, he started steering, which opened up a door to be in the jail on a weekly basis, sharing Jesus and the hope and power that comes through him with a bunch of people who are hurting and hungry. And you know what I found so interesting is that all of my friendship evangelism um, paralyzing myths, they didn't work very well. When people were hungry, some of the relationships were formed around the gospel, not in spite of it or not 10 years down the road. And when, when I connect with people and talk to them and they know up front, I'm here because I care about you. And the most important thing we could talk about is Jesus. I want to know about your life. I want to know about other things. And we'll laugh and we'll, we'll connect. But the most important conversation right up front is if you're, if you're wanting to grow spiritually, let me tell you about how that happens. I've been, again, just surprised at watching my assumptions fall away. So this board member is connected with a guy who's coming out of house arrest, also coming out of history of a bunch of things. And train him, match him up, and he shares with me beforehand. He's like, I'm, I'm really excited to meet this guy. I'm really excited to do this. It's a, you know, I'm pumped. I'm scared spitless. Because this guy's been involved in church forever. He's been doing, he's served on a bunch of committees and things. But now here's a real human being whose life is, is hurting and who wants to grow in the Lord. And it's like, oh my goodness, what do I do with him? It's like, hey, it's okay. John, you have the Holy Spirit. We'll train and we'll prepare and we'll, we'll follow up and we'll support and we'll support each other in this whole process. But you have the Holy Spirit. What can't happen? Anything can happen. You've got your greatest resource. I've been uh, so excited about watching what happens when Christians step into a whatever kind of harvest field happens is, is theirs and have taken it really um, as an opportunity to not just talk about it, first do it, and then just help other people do things. Because 
if we would talk about the Great Commission, everybody would go, yeah, that's, that's what we should do, make disciples. And then we get up Monday morning and we go, now what are we doing? Like, what do what we do? I'll take at Pathway about three Sundays a year and just hijack the service and have people practice sharing their story. Practice sharing your story of how Jesus has changed your life. Like, stand up and meet somebody you don't know and, and cross the room and t- tell them the story of how Jesus changed your life. Go, go find somebody you don't know and just ask them if you can pray for them. I know you're not a professional prayer. It's okay, God will. Even if you swear and you're brand new and you don't know what to say in your prayer, that's fine. Just go pray for somebody. And have practice sharing the gospel with somebody. What if you found yourself in the conversation where somebody really was hungry spiritually and they wanted to find forgiveness for the guilt that they're carrying? Could you? And so we'll practice that and we'll practice sharing it and move around the room. And I have found that as much as my comfort zones have been disrupted, it's electrifying to me to see other people taking steps to reach people who God cares about so much. When I was in college, I had a professor who mentored me through a faith crisis. I had junior year by then, dropped out of ministry classes, dropped out of ministry. I was about ready to drop out of my faith altogether. And our one-on-ones every week really helped me piece and reconstruct things back together. And in one of our meetings, I was on the verge of being a little late because it was one of the first nice spring days of the year. And so I had gone out hiking and walking the trails, walking the forest at Salamone and I just spent a lot of time out in the woods. And so I rushed back to my meeting and I'm sitting in his office across the desk from him and we're talking, having a great conversation. Like usual, I look down and realize my shoes are filthy. Like I've got mud caked all over my shoes. And it had, half of it had already fallen off all over his carpet. So I'm, I'm mortified. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. So I interrupt the conversation and say, I'm so sorry. I've just got mud all over your carpet. And I've been out hiking and in the fields and forests and I start to stoop down and he looks at me and he goes, oh, that kind of dirt's welcome here. And then I remembered this guy teaches a backpacking course. In fact, he introduced me to backpacking. He's hiked the entire Appalachian Trail and the entire Pacific Crest Trail and a lot of other miles elsewhere. This guy loves the outdoor. He loves the forest. And I saw with a glimpse in his eyes, he wasn't upset that I dragged that in. He was almost, it was almost endearing to him that it was a little live relic of something that he cherished as well, the outdoors in the middle of this sterile office. And I have to think that Jesus' message to us as a church would be something like that. It's okay. That kind of dirt is welcome here. Go between sterile Sundays and get feet muddy in the harvest fields of people's lives. Hey, get your feet muddy and then come back in and drag. I'm not talking about people being muddy. I'm talking about the field being muddy that we've actually been involved in people's lives who Jesus cares so much about. This is what he trained his followers to do. And then it just blows me away. Comments like John 20, as the father sent me with a mission, with a field, with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, so I am sending. You'll do the kind of work that I've been doing. You'll even do greater things than you saw me do. Church, I would love to pray that simple prayer with you, the the harvest field sending prayer, the John 9 prayer. I'd love to pray that simple prayer with you. But before we do, I'd like to um, offer, if you are hearing what I'm talking about with the gospel of Jesus this morning, 
and you're in that searching place and something is stirring inside of you and you're going, you know what? I don't know if I've ever taken that step that he's been describing. I wanna offer you the opportunity to do that because God's spirit is here. He's heard everything you've ever prayed. He knows exactly where your hurts are. He knows what hope lies ahead even when you don't see it. And if that's you, man, let today be the day of salvation for you to make the step of surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus. If that's you, I wanna pray for you first. I didn't do this in the nine o'clock service, didn't feel like we should, but I'd like to do it here. So if that's you, you don't have to speak out loud, you don't have to stand up or anything, just pray quietly in your heart to God, he hears you. Jesus, I put my faith in you as my savior and my Lord. Please forgive me of my sin and my wrong. And please help me follow you for the rest of my life. Amen. Guy comes up to me in jail a while back when it wasn't locked down from COVID. And we're talking and he's just starting to tell me of all this guilt, all this hurt, all these things that are just so heavy on his life. And as we talk, man, five years ago, seven years ago, I would have been trying to think of what Bible verse to tell him or give him some counseling wisdom or something. And we just went straight to the power of Jesus forgives sins. Whatever you've done, what you're describing, let's get rid of it right now. And so we prayed and he did one of those like surrender his life to Jesus, ask for forgiveness for sins. And you know what happened? It's what happens so often when people recognize that Jesus is right there through the power of the spirit. As soon as we're done praying, he just goes, I feel 500 pounds lighter. It's like you just lifted 500 pounds off my shoulders. Yeah, that's what forgiveness feels like. Jesus is great. I'd like to pray for you a harvest prayer. And in just a minute, when, when we close, you can sit back down. But would you be willing to stand with me for this prayer? Jesus, I, th- I think it's still absolutely true today. The same thing you said. It's the harvest that is plentiful. And sometimes our courage that may be in the gap waiting. So I I pray, God, this very morning with us that you would send us and send us more into the harvest fields with the equipping of your Holy Spirit to reach people that you love, people who really, they're not sure if life is worth living anymore. For a lot of people, they've, they've run out of options trying other things that doesn't work. Soul is not satisfied. They've maybe been burned or, or tried church. And Jesus, help us to bring them to you. I pray that you would send us some in this, in this very room. Lord, I don't know what kind of gifts or design you've put in them, but I pray that you would match that with action. And that that action would result in the gospel spreading all over this county and community. I pray that, Lord, the result of this 35, 40-minute talk this morning would not be insight, would not be ideas, would not be challenge, would not be conviction. It would just simply be movement into the harvest field. Let it be nothing else than that. And, Lord, I also pray that you would uh, set up opportunities for us in this very room. Because if anybody's like me, we're scared. We're scared of all those things. But Lord, when we see people having hope, 
when we see tears falling and marriages reconciled and people not wanting to die anymore and people getting out of addictions and people who have hope for the first time in a long time and think, oh my gosh, maybe God was listening. Lord, it's worth it. I pray that you would give us the guidance that we need to step into the fields of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.